As we're all still mulling the causes, course and consequences of Prigozhin's mutiny, what about the spook side of things? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. So let me warn you in advance that this is going to be a relatively short podcast, in part for reasons of time, but also in part, quite frankly, because there's still so little that we truly know. Where is Prigozhin, for example? We know that a private jet associated with him ended up flying to Minsk, but certainly as of recording, I don't think we've actually had any confirmation that he's there. And also, where are all the other sort of key participants? Defence Minister Shoigu was seen sort of in the background while Putin was, was giving some speeches and some medals at the beginning of the week, but it was definitely a non-speaking role. Whereas Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, we haven't seen or heard from at all. I still think that ultimately it's unlikely that they will be sacked any time soon, for the simple reason that it would look as if Putin was giving in to Prigozhin, as if there was some kind of secret coda to their agreement, and that would make him look even weaker than he is now. But of course, I could be entirely wrong. Then we have the tales that uh, General Surovikin, the head of the aerospace forces, and a man who was... Personally, I wouldn't necessarily say close to Prigozhin, but close to Wagner, and certainly worked well with them. Well, that he is currently now under arrest or under interrogation or whatever, even though his deputy says that that's not true. But on the other hand, we haven't seen anything from him. And I must say that, you know, although we've had these claims that sort of Ekin was a claims, I should say, from American intelligence as communicated to the New York Times in particular that sort of Ekin knew about the plot in advance. I'm a little bit cautious because there's, there's no as in we're going to do this on this date and then there's no as in an awareness that at some point Wagner is considering some kind of action. And I think in the current rather feverish political environment in, in Russia, the one can very easily be spun as the other. So we'll have to wait and see. It is worth noting, after all, that not only did Surovikin appear in a video appealing to Wagner fighters to put down their arms and generally be good boys, something that, of course, people say, oh, it looked like a terrorist video. I, you know, I don't know if, if it's sort of he was doing it under orders and under, under, under the gun or not. But it's also worth noting, after all, that the only real resistance to Wagner's movement came from the aerospace forces and a number of Russian pilots paid with their lives for that. So, you know, again, we just have to wait and see. Another one of the imponderables, what on earth is going to happen to Prigozhin's empire? We sometimes forget Wagner is obviously the most uh, visible element thereof. But at the same time, it was only part of a whole rather bizarre ecosystem of businesses that fell within Concord, which is, is or was, we'll have to wait and see, 
Prigozhin's great sort of managing company. And much of Concord's activities are things like catering provisions to well, the military at one point, various schools and other government departments. There are, you know, there's a big media arm which is involved in everything from advertising through political technology to the, you know, infamous social media troll farms. There's you know, a large real estate dimension to it. And then, of course, there's the operations abroad, primarily in Africa, where Wagner obviously is uh, playing a crucial role but in some ways simply as one part of a business that can provide what I'd like to think of as authoritarian support services. So if, if you're a you know, very or even just middlingly unpleasant authoritarian regime and you want someone to, yes, maybe fight some inconvenient rebels and provide you with bodyguards for your VIPs and such like, but at the same time, want political technologists to show you how to rig an election so you get the result you want. Or troll and other social media managers to make sure that they astroturf some kind of campaign either at home or quite possibly in the West to basically make the case that why your regime is actually really rather nice or essential to Western interests or just at the very least not worth sanctioning. And a whole variety of other ways, yes, Concord can provide. So Wagner becomes a sort of the uh, most kinetic end of a whole spectrum of services. And one of the unique aspects of this is precisely because Wagner is part of this conglomerate, which you know, in the final analysis has the Russian state as its sort of silent partner and, and backstop. Well, instead of demanding to be paid by cash on the nail, as most equivalent mercenary companies would, you can pay for its services by giving Concord a share of your gold industry or your diamond industry or whatever it is you've got. And even if that's not going to give you a profit immediately, that doesn't matter because in a way one part of Concord can cover the expenses of another. So in this respect, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to, to this empire. Because, you know, it is presumably the case that the Kremlin would like to hold on to this act, these activities in Africa especially, because not only is it very lucrative, it also provides some kind of, of leverage, some kind of even soft power. We should note, after all, that although Wagner clearly have done all kinds of unpleasant things, in many of the countries in which they're deployed in Africa, they are regarded as, at best, the least worst option compared to jihadist rebels or whatever else, and at, at best, genuinely a, a useful source of stability and peace enforcement. So, I mean, in that context, actually, given that most people do not really draw a line between Wagner's activities and Russia, it's actually quite good for Russian political power projection abroad. So they presumably want to hold on to that. But at the same time, obviously, Wagner's operations in Russia and Ukraine are going to be much, much more problematic. Apparently, Wagner is still recruiting. Well, we'll have to wait and see if that's just simply something that's going on by, by sort of inertia and, and going to stop, or whether these fighters are then going to be transferred to other units or even just simply head off to Africa. But the point is that there already seems to be moves to try and begin to break up the Concord Empire. Not least because this is what happens in, in the Russian political system. As soon as someone is weak, other people will want to steal profitable businesses from that individual. There's talk, for example, that the media empire, 
largely, you know, the, the, generally speaking, the Patriot Media Group, is going to be taken over perhaps by the banker Yuri Kovalchuk, one of Putin's closest friends, and a pretty convenient way of not only earning him money, but also essentially bringing Patriot squarely under the control of the presidential administration. Other aspects of the, of the empire, again, are already being sort of approached from the sort of point of view of, of it being sort of generally asset stripped and, and cannibalized. The point is, though, that that will obviously have a direct impact on the operations of Concord and Wagner in Africa, because precisely it, it worked as part of this kind of complex of activities. In terms of trigger pullers, if Wagner's not providing it, there are other Russian mercenary organizations, particularly under the control of the Ministry of Defense, like Patriot and Redut and so forth, that could fill that gap quite easily. You know, one moderately competent, presumably, if not necessarily morally competent, mercenary is much like another. But the point is, as I say, that Wagner worked insofar as it did precisely because of its role within Concord, precisely because it came as part of that same package deal, and it could be paid for in those ways. Take away the mineral exploitation arm of Concord, for example, or the political technologists, or the media empire, and actually you may well have a much more unimpressive value proposition, shall we say. So, you know, again, all of this remains to be seen. The common sense answer is that you want to basically keep Concord, but can you do that without Prigozhin? Or are they still going to be dependent on it? I mean, all the various uh, sort of deals, and particularly the informal contracts. I mean, a lot of Wagner's and Concord as a whole's operations in Africa depend on illicit financial transfers to sort of pay various things, to smuggle out the gold and the diamonds and whatever else. Now, it seems to be that Prigozhin played quite an important point role in brokering all these various deals. Can they survive without him? Is Russia still willing, or Moscow, or Putin, call it what you will, still willing to work with Prigozhin, even if he's based in Minsk? Is he going to be willing to work with them? Another imponderable. And even if they are, can this actually work? This is, after all, the dynamic of Putinism, that assets are there to be divided amongst those who are powerful at the moment, which tends to involve closeness to Putin, and obviously Prigozhin's assets now are up for grabs. Can state interests overrule the natural dynamic of the system for asset stripping and cannibalistic devouring of whatever's available? My suspicion is not. It would require Putin to actually impose the interests of the state over the interests of his cronies. And the track record is that doesn't happen. And one of the final ones of all the various many imponderables I could be talking about is precisely about backing for Prigozhin, and particularly a certain narrative that says that Prigozhin is being or was being backed by the FSB and perhaps also by Nikolai Patrushev. Now, the evidence for this tends to be very, very thin. We have things like, well, the FSB controlled border guards let Wagner through without any type of, sort of trouble. But I think that's actually very hard to really follow that through. You know, a squad of lightly armed Pagranichniki border guards suddenly faced with an armoured convoy of Wagner troops, fellow Russian troops after all, and people who do have something of a 
you know, substantial mythic status as the sort of super warriors of the, the Ukrainian front. Suddenly they want to roll through your, your block post. Are you really going to try and stop them or are you just going to wave them through? Of course, you're, you're going to do the latter. So I don't actually think this necessarily shows some kind of grand strategic support. More broadly, though, I mean, there is massive supposition that is often really based around the fact that the FSB itself has acquired this mythic status as the malign force behind almost anything that happens. And indeed, if we are to believe these American intelligence leaks in some ways as uh, spun or embroidered on by the FSB's sources themselves later, it was precisely because the FSB had uncovered this terrible plot against the, the motherland that Prigozhin had to move prematurely and therefore was, was less effective. Though it's worth noting that this is largely coming from certain social media sites and, to be honest, the kind of commentators who just a day before had been claiming that Prigozhin had been brilliant for moving on Friday night, Saturday morning, when so many within the Russian power structure were dead drunk or crucially hung over. So, you know, again, we, we have to treat this with, with some degree of caution. It may well be true. It may not be. But what it does do for me is raise the issue of precisely what was the role of the Russian intelligence and security forces? And I mean the, the spooks rather than the, the soldiers of the National Guard at this stage. And what might it mean for them, or perhaps put it another way, what should we be looking for to give us a sense of the wider dynamics of what may be going on in the Kremlin and in Putin's head? So let me have the usual break, and then let me start digging into that. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Now, before I start, just a quick message to those of you who are my esteemed patrons. Particularly in the light of the current insanity, I'm thinking of having a patrons-only Q&A sort of session. What I don't know is whether it will be best to do this live, which has a certain degree more kind of energy and immediacy, or something in which I get you to send in questions and then I answer them in a recorded format. As I said, live, live is more fun, but on the other hand, aware of the geographic spread of patrons, that may well actually not work for everyone. So what I'm going to do is in the next day or so, I'm going to be sending round uh, a little poll for you to express your views. And the reason I'm using the podcast to tell you about this is I've discovered particularly of late that patron messages have in some cases been disappearing into people's spam folders. So if you haven't received anything you know, by, let's say, the end of Monday, you might want to check there. Anyway, thanks for the uh, listening and thank you for those of you who are not my patrons for your tolerance. And I will now get on with the actual meat of, of this particular episode. And I said, I, I want to look at really how three different services responded or didn't respond to the, the crisis, what that might say and where we should be looking in the future. And those are the FSB, but particularly DVKR, the Military Counterintelligence Department, uh, 
the FSO, in other words, the Federal Protection Service, and of course our perennial favourites, the GRU, technically the GU, the main directorate of the, of the general staff, but still widely known as GRU for the main intelligence directorate. None of which I would suggest exactly covered themselves with glory. So let's start first of all with the DVKR. Now this is a part of the first service of the, the FSB, which is the overall uh, sort of counterintelligence service. And the idea is that this is basically meant to, well, in theory, looks for enemy spies within the military and other arms-bearing services. In practice, it, it oversees them. In, it's actually there really more than anything else to make sure that there's not going to be any kind of coups or the like. Gosh. And it has networks and informants in every military district, in some individual military units, particularly sort of ones that are regarded as particularly important, like, for example, the paratrooper divisions. It's got elements sort of that are attached to a variety of key bases. It's got networks in all the various bases abroad, in, you know, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, and so forth. It also has actually sort of separate sections for the Roskvardia, for the various military academies, even for the, the, the nuclear troops. What we don't know is whether it had got round to setting up any kind of specialist section to cover the mercenaries, of whom Wagner is, of course, the main one, but not, as I said in a previous podcast, and I'll leave a link in the program notes, the only one of these various mercenary organisations. So, you know, we don't know whether actually it was caught out, and it clearly was caught out, by the fact that its network hadn't picked up on, on the conspiracy. And let's be perfectly honest, what happened may have been launched at the spur of the moment, but the stockpiling of ammunition, and I would suggest even more importantly of fuel, the working out of the different routes and such like, there has to have been preliminary work. You know, Wagner actually has a pretty good reputation for its capacity to show initiative, sort of operating bottom-up rather than this very hierarchical, stodgy, top-down model of the Russian military as a whole. But still, there, there had to have been preparations which don't seem to have been properly picked up. And as I said, it may just simply be that they, didn't, they hadn't really thought that they needed to actually have a separate section to, to look at them. Who, who can tell? Now, this fall falls under the jurisdiction of Colonel General Nikolai Yuryev. And I should add that, coincidentally and entertainingly, that's the same name as a man from Novoralsk who has recently been charged with planning to firebomb a draft board, which has led to some interesting confusion from, from some elements of the media. But anyway, moving on. So, you know, Yuryev is, is the guy who really was meant to have prevented any kind of coup any kind of similar mutiny, call it what you will. And we're left with a sort of a series of, of interesting questions here. We're told that the FSB had worked out what was going on in advance. How come, though, they couldn't therefore arrest Prigozhin beforehand? Or, fair enough, so Prigozhin may well have been surrounded by his own Wagner mercenaries or something like that. How come they couldn't just simply warn him off? After all, the FSB inherited from the KGB this practice of what's known as prophylactic chats, where, and this is essentially something that was aimed at uh, political dissidents, 
you know, you, you bring them in and you wouldn't threaten them, you wouldn't talk about their political activities at all, but just simply by making it clear that they were on your radar, you intimidated the hell out of them. Well, I mean, couldn't couldn't Yuriev have just rung up Prigozhin and, and simply said, you know, well, I hope no one tries to mutiny because we've got one hell of a response waiting for them, or something similar to have just made it clear that this was, was not a, a runner. Failing that, how come if, in fact, the FSB had a couple of days' warning, which is what we're meant to believe, couldn't the Russian forces mobilise to stop them? How come that they could just simply roll into Rostov-on-Don without any opposition and then do the same in Voronezh and to roll through Lipetsk and make their way to within 200 kilometres of Moscow? It's all very well saying, well, we want to avoid bloodshed, though obviously tell that to those poor helicopter and uh, command post aircraft pilots who died. And that the Oka River represents a, a logical choke point at which to defend Moscow, which is perfectly true. But on the other hand, this could have been intercepted so much earlier if people had some kind of, of, of sense of what was going on. So, you know, it, it just doesn't really hold, hold together truly. So what, is it that in fact the FSB did pick up on this, but chose not to inform the political leadership? Or conversely, that the political leadership didn't believe them? Well, both of those are pretty implausible. I mean, one is, let's be honest, tantamount to treason. And the other one would imply a degree of complacency, which I think is out of place. Look, in many ways, this is a regime which, which is quite often very complacent. But I do think the thought of uh, 10 plus thousand mercenaries mutinying against you is the kind of thing that you think would, would have bothered people. All of this is one way of saying that surely, surely someone ought to be held to account for this. Could it be Yuriev himself? Now here's an interesting little bit of what I suppose is not so much Kremlinology as Lubyankology. Yuriev is meant to be someone who is a rival to the first deputy director of the FSB, Sergei Karalyov. Now, Karalyov is the likely and prospective heir to succeed current FSB director Bortnikov. Bortnikov himself is frankly ailing as well as aging. There was an expectation a couple of years back that he was going to resign and that Karalyov was going to take over then, well, Karolyov has his enemies as well as his issues, a little bit too obviously involved in some dirty dealings. So at first, Botnikov's retirement was pushed back to allow Karolyov a little bit more time in place as first deputy director, to allow also some uh, scandals around his sort of corruption that he was involved with to subside. Then what happened was the invasion of Ukraine, and once again, pushback, a sense that the immediate moment of, of the start of a full-scale war is not the time to be reshuffling the top of the FSB. So, you know, Karolyov is still waiting, and I would imagine increasingly impatiently. Bortnikov is struggling along, although it has to be said that on the whole his, his profile has, has declined dramatically, and most of the time we only ever actually see him attending meetings by video screen. And so if anything did happen to Yuriev, then that would be a fillet to Karolyov. It would clear away another one of his rivals and critics from within the system and might facilitate his rise. 
Conversely, though, if you were a figure within the FSB who was opposed to Karolyov's rise, and there are quite a few who are, then maybe you're going to want to keep Yuriev in place precisely to maintain as strong a, an anti-Karolyov coalition as possible. So the net effect of this, as I'm getting at, is the degree to which what one might think of as the real operational needs of counterintelligence are really being uh, hijacked by personal politics at the top of the system. So uh, as I say, on the whole, I don't think the FSB has covered itself in glory. It continues to appear to be entirely Teflon-coated. It never gets the blame for any of the numerous blunders it makes, especially when they actually lead to, frankly, catastrophic policy decisions. Remember, it was the FSB that was assuring Putin that they had this extraordinary network of agents within Ukraine who were ready to turn against Zelensky and raise the banner in support of Russia and its chosen proxy government, which presumably was one of the things that actually encouraged Putin to invade, thinking it was going to be easy. But of course, it didn't, hasn't seemed to have suffered any kind of negative consequences as a result. Just as way back in 2014, at a time when most of the other intelligence and security services were telling Putin that the former uh, Ukrainian president Yanukovych was basically going to lose power. It was the FSB that was most bullish in saying that he was going to be able to control what became the revolution of dignity. Again, the FSB was wrong, and again, the FSB didn't suffer in any way as a result. So, you know, whether it's because Putin thinks that they're necessary, whether it's because this is, after all, Putin's own service, he used to be di director of the FSB more likely a combination of the two, but for those reasons it's unlikely that anything's going to happen to the FSB as an institution. But on the other hand, it's, it is worth watching what happens in terms of the personalia. It'll tell us something about what's going on inside. So much more briefly, let me move on to the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, you know, the, the final uh, Praetorian Guard and defender of Putin's position which includes things like the Kremlin Guard, who are clearly on high alert as Wagner approached Moscow, but also a, a much wider secret service that, amongst other things we do know, is meant to be constantly monitoring what's happening in terms of elite politics and has its own dedicated phone and electronic eavesdropping capacity. Now, again, you would have thought that, well, you know, OK, maybe Pogosian and his people were being very, very canny, using only burner phones or paper messages being moved by courier or whatever. But again, one would have thought that they would have picked up on the fact that Pogosian was reaching the kind of pitch in terms of, of his struggle with the defence ministry over the continued autonomy of Wagner, and just generally that he was just angry enough that he might well be doing something quite extraordinary. But again, nothing seems to have come from this. Now, we know least of this. FSO, frankly, of all the various services, is the most secretive, the least prone to leaks, and in some ways the one that is most secure and therefore doesn't really need to engage in the kind of semi-public intra-elite signalling that the, these leaks suggest. You know, but nonetheless... There was, there was an agency that could have, in theory, picked up the slack from the FSB, and it didn't. Moving on, the third, the GRU. Now, 
The GRU at one point was clearly very, very closely involved with Wagner, essentially was providing the, well in Russian terms, is the curator. So the, the, the overseer, but also the patron who provides all, all, all the necessary wherewithal. The relationship had got a lot more complex since then. There are periods in which actually Wagner was scarcely being employed by the Ministry of Defence. And then, of course, since February, well, no, actually, really, since spring of last year, when Wagner was heavily involved in combat operations, in some ways it had evolved beyond its relationship with, with the GRU and was receiving money and contracts directly from the Ministry of Defence. Nonetheless, it was very interesting that when we saw Prigozhin having a open-air sit-down meeting with two generals in Rostov-on-Don, a meeting in which he was very much kind of throwing his weight around and had arranged to be videoed and then and then broadcast, along with Deputy Defence Minister Yunus Bek Yevkurov. The other figure there was Lieutenant General Vladimir Alexeyev, Deputy Head of the GRU. And in many ways, well, I think the person who's probably regarded as the closest thing there is to a remaining curator of Wagner and other mercenary groups within the, the, the Russian apparatus. Now, Alexeyev, he's ex-Spetsnaz, so he very much comes from... It's, it's an interesting bifurcation of the GRU. There are those people who primarily were, shall we say, military diplomats who soon went into becoming you know, deputy defence attaché here or there or whatever, running networks of agents, but essentially operating behind diplomatic cover, sort of splitting their time between uniformed and cocktail circuit duties. And then there's the Spetsnaz, Special Forces side of the house, the hard men who go and do all, all the wet work and so forth, most of whom remain, frankly, as commandos, but a certain number of which then sort of rise up within the GRU. And there is an interesting tension there also between the individuals. The current head of GRU, Admiral Igor Kostyukov, is very much seen as being more on the cerebral side rather than the action man side. I honestly don't know how he and Alexeyev get on. I mean, I, I could happily uh, speculate and invent, but, but I won't. But the point is that Alexeyev clearly has been playing an absolutely crucial role within operations in Ukraine. Again, from about last spring, it seems to be that the FSB's role was downgraded and the GRU's increased, because it makes sense. I mean, after all, this is a war. And although the FSB is also involved in covert operations, they're much more involved in the kind of corruption, compromat, social media disinformation, rather than the killing and blowing people up side of things. Now, Alexeyev had uh, given a, a video address also uh, in which he appealed to Wagner fighters to put down their arms. He called this a sort of stab in the back and such like. But the point is that Alexeyev, his career really has been of late linked with mercenaries. He was also, for example, played a cru crucial role in establishing one of the MOD's military units, uh, mercenary units called Redut. And, and generally speaking, he has been, I understand, a, a strong advocate for their value as deniable instruments for the Russian state and overall sort of part of the kind of full spectrum of capabilities that Moscow needed to have. Now, this may be why he was particularly willing to talk to Prigozhin, because he's been dealing with Prigozhin in the past, but also because 
to be honest, he presumably felt he had more to lose, and hence also the, the, the appeal and, and such like. Now again, to the best of our knowledge, so far nothing has happened to Alexeyev. He has, I would suggest, much less of an immediate reason to feel or to be regarded as being to blame, in that he was not managing Wagner at that time, as I understand it. But on the other hand, given that he has been a booster for the use of mercenaries in the past, then, you know, again, it'll be interesting to see if his career particularly sort of expands. So, you know, overall, what we have is an interesting situation here. Russia has a complex and interconnected network of domestic security agencies, which are precisely meant to monitor each other and also any potential serious military threats to the power of the state. And they failed. They were not able to pick up on Prigozhin's preparations and plans, or at least not able to do so with enough warning, or then to know quite what to do with that knowledge. And frankly, non-actionable information is the next best thing to no information at all. Then, when it happened, they seemed to have no capacity to bring any traction to bear on Prigozhin. Again, in due course, we'll wait and see, and I'm sure that we'll find certain FSB outlets like Live News at some point telling us how the FSB, in fact, played an absolutely crucial role in the negotiations, or somehow bringing pressure to bear on Prigozhin or whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe that when I actually have some kind of other corroboration for that. But so, they have failed. And in the process, they offer a new challenge to Putin. A challenge in the sense of, first of all, shall we say, a, a conceptual one. Is he even going to be able to appreciate the degree to which they have failed him? Now, I honestly don't know. One would have thought so. But on the other hand, certainly his past track record is that he is, seems to be entirely willing either to believe them when they explain why it wasn't their fault, Gov, or that he feels there's nothing really he can do about it because he needs them too much. So that's the second thing. What does he do about it? Now, in the, in the case of the, the military, it's quite interesting because at the moment he's essentially praising the rest of you know, the Wagner fighters, saying that actually they're, they're patriots and so forth. The new narrative seems to be that they're actually misled into marching to Moscow by Prigozhin. Not exactly particularly plausible, but hey, they're scrabbling around for lines to, to throw out. And Putin is doing that at the very same time that his own generals seem to be being under, put under increasing scrutiny and people like Shoigu and Gerasimov are being frozen out. So one, one can question Putin's capacities to understand the, the best thing to do in the circumstances either. But nonetheless, one would think that something should be done. Whether it's that DVKR needs to be given a quick kicking, and that would generally be regarded as an opportunity for, for Yuriev to be removed. Whether, well, the FSB, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll give them a pass because we don't really know quite what they're doing. Or is it that, in fact, the, the, the GRU needs to be taken to task for being such an ardent champion of the value of mercenaries and not being able to do anything about it when... What was in many ways, I wouldn't quite say their own creation. I mean, Wagner was not purely a, a GRU creation, rather that they were, once Wagner had proven itself, you know, remember the, the infamous uh, Molkino base for Wagner, which is on a GRU Spetsnaz training camp, 
was only set up after Wagner had been operating for a while. In some ways, after it had proven itself in the Donbass, that's when the GRU started to provide serious support. But, but still, GRU is intricately connected to Wagner and its rise. So again, is there going to be any blame? Because of all the various figures from the GRU who seem to have been most important in this, it would appear to be Lieutenant General Alexeyev. What am I expecting? Nothing at all. And in that respect, I think this is going to show for us the degree to which Putin is increasingly unable to learn proper lessons, or even if he does, so hemmed in by his own system or by his own fears about what would happen if he starts to try and unpick any elements of it, that he will not really be able to do anything. So yes, there, there might be a few ceremonial scalps somewhere, but essentially the same situation will, will continue. And that is just one more reason why I very much see this as late Putinism, a system which has become so sclerotic and so ossified that it just simply cannot reform itself. And, well, evolution's like that. If you can't evolve, you die. Which is, a, I would suggest, a nice positive note on which to end this rather brief episode of In Moscow Shadows. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>